Hi, this is NBA referee Scott Foster. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game. You are listening to the Crown Refs Podcast, the audio experience for basketball official officials. Serve the game. Serve the game. Crown Refs Podcast, episode number 49, features 25-year NBA official Scott Foster. Scott has worked 18 NBA final games and had the Golden State Toronto series went to his seventh game. He was scheduled to be the crew chief. He gave us a lot of great information that you can immediately apply into your games, including Scott Foster's nine ways to self-talk and six tips to improve your signals. Definitely pay attention to this podcast. Please go subscribe and share it. I put a lot of videos up from this audio you're about to hear on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So definitely go check that out if you have a chance. I appreciate your time. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you one of the best basketball referees in the world, Scott Foster. Scott, super honored to have you on. I admire the great work that you do for the game. Can we just start with you sort of giving us your referee timeline? Talk about how you got your start officiating. Take us through the early years of your development and then ultimately to how you were able to move up and officiate at the highest level of the sport. Sure. Um, yeah. So 1986, a year out of high school, I was uh, um, coaching uh, basketball with my younger brothers and they were not paying me a nickel. And after a game one day, a guy said, hey, if you stay after a referee, we'll give you 10 bucks. And uh, actually, it might have been five. And so I started thinking that was a better idea than coaching for free. And uh, so I started refereeing, um, you know, rec ball for I think it was three dollars and 10 cents an hour. And wow. um, yeah, it was uh, Pretty, I think that was the, the minimum wage back then. And so I did that. And I went to my freshman year at uh, Montgomery College in Rockville, uh, where I grew up. Uh, my accounting teacher was a high school referee, found out I was refereeing Biddy Bites and um, suggested I go take the IBO test uh, after taking a few classes. The classes had already started. So I got in a little late, um, about four weeks of classes or so, six weeks of classes. I took the test and got seven wrong which was the exact number you could get wrong and pass, which was, whew, that was close. And, uh, you know, what, what could have been uh, had I gotten the eighth one wrong? It's uh, always a weird destiny question. But anyway, um, there's a lot of NBA fans at work, so I had gotten that eighth question wrong, I guess. But uh, we um, – I started refereeing, and back then there were two assigners. There was Joe Marish and a guy, Henry DeSeabor, and he was in charge of the at JV games and that sort of thing. And there were no cell phones or text messages and stuff like that. So I'd get home from college at around – one in the afternoon, there'd be a list of games that you know, my grandmother had uh, put down uh, that they had called me and said to go do. So, you know, three o'clock, I'd go to Tilden Middle School and five, I'd go do Wooten JV. And then at uh, seven o'clock, I'd do three men's uh, league games. And then I'd come home and do my homework and start it over the next day. So that first year, I was lucky enough to work a bunch of games. And then off to, you know, after about several years, a friend of mine said I should go to a camp. So I went to Fred Bearcat's camp. Um, and then my first game, um, uh, George Tolliver, who was a rookie NBA referee, and uh, Donnie Vaden happened to be watching the game and saw a 22-year-old kid running around pretty quick and um, thought that, uh, you know, I had a, had something. I didn't have a whole lot, but I had something. And then um, uh, did okay there. And, and uh, a guy named Mac Feltz put me in the ODAC, which was a Division three down on, the 80, on Route 81 in Virginia. And uh, from there, we just, uh, you know, started doing games after games and started going to camps. And um, I think between um, some NBA referees seeing me who had just come from the college when they went three-man 
Uh, my name got knocked around to the NBA, and in around 1990, um, they invited me to uh, LA Pro Summer League. So uh, by that time, I really wanted to be a Division One ACC referee. I was doing small college. I was in the Big South. And uh, that second year of going back to Fred Bearcat's camp, I went to George Tolliver's camp. And a guy named Jim Birch, who uh, recently passed away, um, he brought me on his staff. And um, he was, from the very beginning, he knew what that I should – that he was helping me get to the NBA. Even though he was a college assigner, he knew he was helping me get to the NBA. And uh, it just he was just a big, big uh, guy as far as my, my development. Um, not so much on the court, but just really gave me an opportunity at a young age to, to develop at a, at a faster age. So upon graduation in Maryland, the uh, NBA gave me the opportunity to go in the CBA. Did two years in there, and then, uh, which was uh, two years of exponential learning, refereeing with people about my age. Um, you know, I went from refereeing Division One and Division Three with guys like John Moreau and uh, Curtis Shaw and and Zelton Steed and Carl Hess and those kind of guys to referee and CBA games with, you know, my guys, my own age, like Tony brothers and Monty McCutcheon and James Caper. So, um, you know, we all grew up together in the CBA and those games back, you know, in the, in the early nineties, late eighties were, you know, uh, controlled chaos. They were just, they were, I think anybody you talk to in the CBA has about a million stories and talk all day about the CBA, but the CBA, at one point, the NBA Finals, all 12 referees came from the, the CBA. And um, it was just the best training ground you could possibly have to be a NBA crew chief um, because you had to deal with a lot of stuff. I mean, a night in the CBA, nine technical fouls is just your average night. Um, you dealt wow. with a lot of stuff. It was, and, you know, just traveling the country to places like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Rapid City, North Dakota, or South Dakota, um, and all the cities around Chicago, like La Crosse and Moline and um, all those great places, uh, you know, it's just a great way to grow up refereeing. And, uh, you know, it was an experience I, I would never trade for anything, even if I hadn't made it to the NBA. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, I did, I got to the NBA doing what everybody else does, you know, starting with a third and fourth grade uh, boys and girls and moving up a little by little. And all of a sudden you find yourself working uh, in the Dean Dome uh, and then working in the CBA in my case. And then in uh, 91, I went to the LA Pro Summer League. And my first game I worked, um, it was Rick Fox was a rookie, Gary Payton was a rookie, uh, Sean Kemp was a rookie. And I, by that time, I knew I wanted to be a uh, uh, ACC referee and work Duke, North Carolina. And that was my goal in life. And one of the very first plays, I've told this story before, but one of the very first plays, um, Gary Payton threw a perfect alley-oop about four feet above the rim. And Sean Kemp uh, jumped up and he jumped out of my eyesight. And I looked up, he was about four feet above the rim, he grabbed it and dunked it with me standing right at the basket. And that's the power and the, the beauty of the NBA game jumped out at me. And um, it was from that moment on, I knew you know, I really wanted to pursue the, the professional game rather than college game. And uh, another thing about that game, well, the Celtics coach that day, I haven't seen him since then, but he, I made a call. It was probably terrible. And uh, the, uh, the center I'd called the play on got upset and the coach for the Celtics told, the player, don't worry about him. He'll never make the NBA. You'll never see him after this week. And, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of lit a fire too. So, uh, I, you know, I've been here for 26 years and I haven't seen him since. So that was kind of <laughs> one of those things that, you know, kind of got my fire burning. You kept that one in your back pocket. Yeah, I did. I do know the guy's name was Igor, but I truly haven't seen him in 26 years. So uh, um, doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. But 
Yeah, it was um, it was a lot of long nights in the in the CBA. Um, you know, after you throw out two or three guys, and and you and your buddy are sitting there and sharing a room at in Grand Rapids, wondering if you're going to make it to the NBA and if you gave up the college schedule to go get your NBA dream. Uh, but it, every moment I spent in the CBA was truly uh, is is some of my greatest memories. I know we have a lot of younger officials that are on um, Crown Refs, so they may not be too familiar with the CBA. That was sort of the minor leagues before um, the G League, right? That's correct. Yeah, um, when I got into the into the CBA, there were 16 teams. Uh, they went, you know, some of them were out west, uh, Tri Cities, Yakima, Washington. Um, I have some good stories about Yakima, Washington, but uh, there were a lot of teams in the central time zone, Wichita Falls, Texas, Grand Rapids, Albany Patroons, you know, kind of all over. But, you know, a lot of the people from the CBA, like Flip Saunders, God rest his soul, um, we all came out of the CBA. And even though whether you were a coach or a mascot or an NBA referee, um, you had kind of a kinship or a, a brotherhood of, of coming from the same place. And I wouldn't say we rooted for each other, but we, we kind of watched each other's careers grow. Uh, whether they became big time coaches like Flip or, uh, or, you know, NBA finals referees like um, Monty, myself and James or, or players that, like uh, Chris Childs and, you know, Anthony Mason and, and uh, all those kind of guys who we refereed in that league. It was really cool. So, yeah, but it was the minor leagues back before the G league and the D league and all that sort of thing. Now, since we're at this point of your timeline, I think it's a good time to ask um, how was your transition from a college official to a pro? Well, um, you know, I don't know that there was that much transition for me. I worked about two years um, of college basketball. Um, and uh, But during that time, I was already trained in the uh, pro summer leagues uh, with Daryl Garrison and Aaron Wade. And, um, you, know, I, I, you know, just adapting to the different mechanics for me was, was the biggest thing. You know, each year, you know, you, and the rules especially, obviously, it was a, that was a grind. But um, the transition for me, I, I pretty much went cold turkey. I left college basketball after two years, um, you know, hanging around guys like John Moreau and, you know, uh, you know, guys that I idolized watching do ACC games. And all of a sudden now I'm talking to guys my own age and we're, you know, who don't have as much experience. So we're trying to figure things out on our own. Um, you know, when I got to the CBA, um, you, you know, it's on the job training, but you're, you know, you're getting a lot of videotape, you're getting a lot of feedback. But the summers that we spent um, back when I was coming up, spending 11 to 21 days um, in summer camp with Daryl Garrison was was not unheard of. So that the transition was really more, um, you know, you're in camp for you know so long, you're inundated with pro basketball that that um, it, there's there's not that much transition. Plus, it wasn't like I was refereeing college for 10 years and now I'm moving on to pro basketball. Um, I, I pretty much grew up to be a pro basketball referee. That's great that you knew that early and you, and you set that goal because I know a lot of officials who um, kind of juggle both the college and the pro struggle with that muscle memory of, you know, one night doing a certain signal and then the next night having to make that transition. So, yeah, you um, know, when I came in, um, I was at George Tolliver's camp. George Tolliver walked up to me and he said, um, you know, I really think you're a natural to be an NBA referee. And I looked at him like he was, you know, like he had two heads. He was completely insane. To me, that was like, that was, that was an impossible, that was something that no one could do. Um, but back then it wasn't like it is now. I mean, really you had to pick, um, this is before John coach John Guthrie, um, had made it, you know, an option where you could referee small college and, and train to be an NBA referee. I mean, um, it was really not, 
it was frowned upon. I mean, Fred Bearcat was not happy with me when I told him I was going to pursue a, uh, um, a job with the NBA or a career with the NBA because he had put some time into me, training me to be an ACC referee. I was on the Big South staff, and uh, he ripped me a good one. I mean, he really went after me. Uh, it was not. It was not. Uh, it was not the same as it is now. I know you had mentioned some names earlier. Could you just um, list a couple of the mentors that inspired you to want to be a great official? Yeah, I mean, it, from the very beginning, uh, the first guy who ever really um, mentored me specifically was uh, Al Batista. Um, he caught me at a young age, walked into the gym. Uh, I was late. I had no polished shoes. My hair was out of place. You know, I'd probably gotten the, the assignment 10 minutes before the game happened. It was 20 minutes late. But um, everyone had told me when I was 19, 20 years old how great I was because, you know, that's just they're being nice. But Al told me the real deal. He gave me the honest uh, – <laughs> he was honest with me and basically told me, you're not very good. And, uh, you know, through his teaching and him introducing me to videotape at a young age, um, that really helped me. So Al, Al was the first guy. Um, he also imparted the, the importance of knowing the rules, but it didn't really stick with me until I got to the CBA. Um, and then I moved on uh, to Donnie Vaden and George Tolliver and, and, uh, and Daryl Garrettson. And, and then when I got in the NBA, my first mentors in the NBA were Ed Rush um, and uh, Jess Kersey and Hugh, Hubert Evans were all great mentors. Um, my second year in the NBA, I spent most of my time with Hubert Evans trying to calm me down. Um, I don't know if he was successful or not, but I definitely <laughs> learned a lot from him, and uh, he helped me a, a lot. And then um, I didn't work with Joe Crawford until my fourth or fifth year. And then once I worked with Joe, um, he became somebody I relied on quite quite a bit. Um, you know, if I've missed somebody, I, I feel terrible because I've had tons and tons of mentors, uh, you know, uh, that have really helped me throughout my career. But, um, uh, you know, it's uh, – those are my main guys, you know, who I, I go back to. I had guys who I wouldn't call mentors, but who are great role models like Steve Javi. So, I mean, Steve never really sat me down and said, look, this is what you messed up tonight. But just watching the way Steve went about his business was always helpful. And, and again, um, you know, somebody who I emulated a little bit. And then, uh, but when I was at University of Maryland, uh, before I became an NBA referee, I used to go to uh, the pregames before the Maryland games and listen to guys like Lenny Wirtz and uh, Frank Scagliata and Paul Hausman um, and John Moreau. And, uh, and I, would, you know, I was really impressed by their preparation and the way they went about their business. And that really, that really stayed with me throughout my career. And then uh, when I was at Maryland, I used to also go to the games. And this one referee used to stand out to me, Sam Croft. And he was uh, an ACC referee. I don't remember for how many years, but his signals to me were like the best signals. So when I was refereeing high school and college basketball, I emulated his signals almost to a fault where, you know, I look like Sam Croft Jr., which I would never tell any young referee to, to do. But uh, I don't even think I ever met the guy. But uh, which now reminds me that when I do something stupid with my signals and all of a sudden next week I see a high school game and there's a kid doing um, a signal that I did, I go, oh boy, what did I start here? So, um, you know, uh, those, but those are a lot of names, um, tons of guys taking a little bit from everybody that, that I've grown up kind of watching. Now you're just talking about signals that we've mentioned on this podcast before ways to improve, you know, studying yourself on film, practicing in front of the mirror, analyzing all the fine details, you know, just putting in the rep, putting in the reps. 
you have a lot of referees that admire how you officiate and also, I don't know, in my opinion, seem to model their game after yours. Is there anything specific that you can share in your practice and training that helped you improve your presentation of signals? Well, I think, I think well, I kind of already hit on it. I mean, you, you definitely want to find some people on TV that you, or games you go to watch or in your association that, that you go, wow, that, that guy, he really is uh, doing it the right way. He's, he's not doing his own thing yet. He's got some polish to his game. Like I said, Sam Croft for me, Earl Croft was a, a guy that I, I emulated early on. Then when I got to the NBA, uh, I used to watch, uh, believe it or not, Eddie F. Rush and also um, Monty when he was a CBA referee. I really liked his signal. So at an early stage of my professional career, there were two or three pro referees that I would watch and go, hmm, I, I like that. And I would watch my video to see how I was doing. But but really what I've learned is, is that signals are – uh, something that come from confidence, from preparation, from a, a lot of other things. So, you know, if you're doing things and you're surprised all the time and you're not prepared, your signals are going to look a little off because you're going to look a little jittery or, you know, you, you do things a little too fast. But you truly have a mastery of the rules. You have a mastery of the, of, um, of the case book and all that sort of thing. It's going to help your signals be better. So it's going to give you more confidence. I have a thing I share with a lot of young NBA referees called a red flag list where basically it gives you a situation. And then when you see that situation, you have a uh, preemptive response or you have a, a rehearsed response. So just to give you a, for instance, we'll take a simple one, uh, jump ball violation to start the game. The, the red flag is that the game clock's going to move. So you want to make sure you are ready for that. And so I have 75 or so red flags that I read, you know, I don't know, on a monthly period or a daily period or, you know, weekly period that remind me to have these habits. And so consistent habits basically help you with consistent signals. And so it's not just about standing in the mirror and watching tape, although those are good things to do. It's really about the whole package of being prepared for so many situations that it, it becomes easier and the game becomes slower. And therefore you can project your signals better because you're, you're not, you're just, you're just kind of going with the flow of, of what you, what you're observing. So, um, yeah, that's that's for me. It's like the signals are kind of a package of all that stuff. If that makes sense. That's great stuff right there. You definitely gave us some nuggets. I would love to hear more of these uh, seventy-five red flags. That sounds like a full episode in itself. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, Joe, I'm not going to take all the credit for that. Joey used to say that to me all the time. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. So I started a uh, a list many years ago. The rules have changed in the NBA enough where I've eliminated a lot of them. But then new rules come along and and we put some new ones on. But um, the people I've given them to, I've now said, Hey, listen, you know, this is our list, not Scott's list. And whenever something happens in a game and you have something new that comes up, you need to give it to me so I can put it on the list and then we share it with everybody. And, and it's kind of evolved into like a group project, you know, with myself and Josh Chivin and Ben Taylor and, and a whole new generation of referees. So that's been kind of cool, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a neat list and it definitely helps you, um, you know, to identify, you know, pitfalls in your games and your situations. And, and you can do it for any level of officiating. It's just identifying those, those situations that may cause a problem and, and really being proactive rather than reactive with them. So that's, that's the biggest thing. And really what the red flag list does is, and this is one of the biggest things um, that I try and do is, is identify opportunity when you're a young referee that this is a time to step in. And, um, can be something as simple as resetting clocks or knowing the team fouls or all that stuff that are opportunities and all those small opportunities 
lead up to advancement, people seeing you as a, a crew chief, a leader, uh, someone with confidence. It's not the guy who comes in from 93 feet and saves the game because he, he got a hit on the arm or something like that. That's an opportunity, but it happens one time in seven years and 700 games, you know. So the other ones happen every night. Well, let's go deeper, deeper there. You know, we're taught to work our primary and own our third. My question to you is, when is it a good time to call out of your area? How do you know when to come get a play? Um, you know, I would say that uh, that's always been my uh, that my downfall is, um, you know, Mark Wendelik always tells me the officials that call out of their primary, their percentages are lower um, than our worst play caller, meaning when they call out of their primary, their percentages are are so bad that they would be ranked 60 something on the staff and the NBA staff. If, if we just took all that, just those calls. So really picking and choosing when you go get those kind of plays is really, really uh, important. And um, I guess over the last five years, uh, maybe, maybe a little longer than that. Um, I've done it. I, I seem to do that less as my experience goes higher because I've, I've started to understand that that's not, not every play out of your, that is, should have been called is the play understanding that um, the play that changes the game, the play that is the game, those are the ones that you got to go get. The ones that, you know, everybody sees in the gym, except maybe the guy who's standing right there, you know, those are the ones you got to go get. So um, that's a tough question to answer because every situation is different. I want to tell you, this is when you do it because there's a million situations, but, um, but do understand this, that the guys who call their primary are usually some of the worst play callers there are because their percentages are so bad. Wow. That's, that's great stuff. So basically when, when we call out of our primary, we are the worst. You, you go from, if you're, let's just say you're a 93% play caller, you, you call, you know, you call hundred plays and you get 93 to 95, right. When you blow your whistle, which, you know, most people don't believe that's the case, but you know, we, most of our misses are incorrect, no calls, but when we blow the whistle, no matter what level you are, you know, our, when we blow the whistle, we're more right than we are wrong. But when you do it outside your primary, you, your, your accuracy probably goes down by 10 to 20%. Um, so if you're calling out of your primary 10 times, instead they get nine, nine, nine right, you're probably getting six right. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm just going to stay in my third. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, obviously there's a time, there's a time to get outside the third. And there's, um, again, it goes back to our red flag list. There's, um, there's other situations when you see the shot clock running down under five, understand what's getting ready to happen and that the, or you're in rotation, understand the crew's vulnerable um, or you're, you're in transition, the, the, maybe the lead's vulnerable, that those are times where, you know, you may want to extend your coverage, but when you're in a half court game and you're everybody's set up and doing what they're supposed to be doing, there's, there's a whole, probably not a whole lot of times you want to be jumping out of there. Gotcha. Yeah, all about up, all about the open angles and who's closed up. So that's another whole tape. We just do tape on that, like a <laughs> clinic, a camp. So that's a like that. that's not a podcast. That's a that's a that's a. We need video for that. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. Well, listen. I try to get content through video, through audio, any way they can consume it. So that's why you're here now. I appreciate it. <laughs> I right, know it. So Scott, uh, over the last couple of years, with the explosion of social media, we've seen and heard a lot of negative attention directed at NBA officials. But we've watched you and other officials just maintain your poise and professionalism and continue to serve the game. So what's it 
like being under so much scrutiny yet still having to perform at the highest level? Well, you know, I mean, Twitter's the worst, but uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how bad it was until uh, game five in the NBA finals. Uh, I believe, let's see, it was Miami, San Antonio. And the game really was a non, I mean, the game was over by halftime. It was a blowout. And my, was in ha- I was in, in the locker room and I got a text from my son. And he said, you're trending on Twitter. And I said, wow, that's cool. And he goes, no, dad, it's not cool. <laughs> so uh, after the game ended, San Antonio won. Uh, I went back to my room and had a few drinks with the guys to celebrate the end of the season. And, and uh, just for fun, kicks and giggles, I went on Twitter to read, well, why was I, why was I trending? And um, it was enlightening, eye-opening. Um, it's funny and depressing at the same time. So uh, uh, I was really, I was flabbergasted by some of the stuff I read. And then through the years after that, uh, you know, death threats, um, uh, you know, people wishing my kids die of cancer. Uh, that's, that's just terrible. I mean, just, you know, the things you can't even imagine. Um, it really became, you know, it was, it was really bad. Um, but um, so I tried to stay away from it. And um, but, you know, when you trend number one on Twitter and you are uh, or number five or whatever, uh, several times, it's hard to, to stay away from it. Like this year. Um, it was uh, had the game two in the conference finals and our conference semifinals and um, the videos that people were sending me. They were funny, but, um, you know, you have to block it out. And um, there's been games, I got to be honest, where um, it affected me when I went on the floor knowing what was going on in social media being aware of that and I uh, didn't do a good job of handling that. And then this year um, had another situation where it, the world blew up on Twitter and uh, the crew and myself, we handled it uh, really well. So it's something you, you have to um, be prepared for, be mentally strong about and really put it out of your mind and just go out and do, you know, just rely on your training and all your fundamentals and just go out and, you know, try and be the same every night. So, it really brings me to the biggest point about officiating that is preparation and consistency and, um, you know, just understanding that you have to be the same every night and treat everybody the same every night, whether it's the top player in the league or the not so top player in the league. So um, that's, that's just, that's the bottom line. What tips could you give the audience to help us manage unsporting comments and behavior from players? used to be we we had professional conversations sure but it was much shorter than it is now now it's it seems to go on for several minutes where it used to be several words and that was that so um the biggest tip i can give you is uh just be as honest as you possibly can every single night um and because no matter what level of officiating you are at those people whether whether you're referencing sixth grade boys or girls or division one or the nba everybody goes back and watches their tape. So when you try and defend calls that are incorrect, people go back and watch tape and go, Oh, they're full of, you know, they're full of it. That's, that's wrong. That's clearly wrong. So when you know you're wrong and when you know um, you didn't have, or if you know you didn't have a good angle or, you you know, you're unsure, it's okay to be honest. And because at the end of the day, um, video is everywhere in this game. I don't care what level you're at. It's on, it's, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be exposed as far as incorrect or not incorrect. But I think the biggest thing is to have um, your responses that are professional, um, try and stay away from the zingers, um, be as patient as you can with everybody, and uh, just try and under- have some empathy for the players and the coaches because they're in high-pressure situations just like we are, and they're competing. At the end of the day, they're judging on their wins and losses. 
just like we're judged on correct and, and incorrect. The biggest thing that happened to me uh, probably 10 years ago is I started coaching and it helped me with understanding X's and O's and how sets work. And I had a greater understanding of, you know, how to look at plays and break plays down. Um, so it slowed the game down for me. Um, and then also I had a little more empathy for coaches and, you know, they're drawing up plays and a guy blows up the play illegally. And, you know, the referee doesn't think it's that big a deal, but that, that was a big deal because that guy's worked on that play or that move or whatever it is. And then we take it away from them and they, it shouldn't have been taken away or we needed to call something and we, we didn't. So I, I started to get the, the, I guess, the uh, frustration of the coaches, um, you know, and it, it helped me. Um, I kind of get along with them a little better. So uh, the players and I, um, you know, we, <laughs> there's some players that, um, you know, I love talking to them. They're, they come at, they come up to me professionally every single time we joke, we, we kid around and there's other players that we're never going to see eye to eye. And uh, you know, they, you know, it becomes personal to them. I, I think what they don't understand is I'm graded on correct every night. And so that's all you want to do is get, get it correct every night and try and try and just keep your, your, responses as 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 short and concise as you, as you can and, and try and stay to the rule book rather than what well, I thought or this is what I think or you know whatever just try and make all your responses rule book based during these uh tense moments of the game that you're just mentioning what kind of self-talk are you using during this time um it all depends on you know what's going on in the game but basically I'm always um every new possession I'm, I'm self-talking the situation uh, self-talking, slow the game down, slow the game down, slow the game down. Um, in the, uh, in our game, the game changes with every second of the shot clock. So we, you really have to know how to referee the shot clock, where the shot clock is because the set changes and the speed of the possession changes with the shot clock. Um, and understand when the shot clock hits five, that something's getting ready to happen. Um, coming to the rim or going in the air or, you know, something. So, um, so a lot of that's all, self-talk for me is you know where we are in the shot clock um, where my mindset is after a major screw up or um, you know where I'm struggling or my, maybe the game's going too fast for me or you know I've done something where I'm, I'm regretting what I've done um, I'm trying to control my breathing I'm trying to talk myself back to fundamentals I'm trying to tell myself to stay basic I'm trying to get myself to just you know get back to being you know calm cool collected and and uh, and just make sure that I get the next play right um, I always kind of go out in every game and try and say to myself, you know, make those first five calls, you know, the kind of calls this guy in the 17th row goes, hey, that's a call. That's a foul. That's a good call. And, you know, the nights where I don't do that, you know, it, it, it doesn't set the crew up for a very good night because now you're, ch you're chasing the game. So um, trying to, I try and talk to myself about that all the time. You know, enjoy, you know, love your first five calls. And uh, from there, you'll get into a nice flow. What do you mean by chasing the game is when you what call something incorrect first couple times? Well, I mean, you, there's lots of ways to chase the game. A lot, when, you, when you're chasing a game, it's normally because you weren't prepared for the intensity or the speed of the game, and now you've allowed some great some plays to get by you, and now you know, you've allowed the physicality to leave what the standard is of the game or the guidelines in your league or whatever they might be. And so now you're chasing the game, trying to get the game to calm down. Or – your whistle was too quick and now you've had two plays in a row that were eh, not so great to start the game. Oh, and by the way, they put uh, one of the players and one of the teams on the bench and he shouldn't be there. Um, and now you're thinking, Oh geez, now I'm chasing the game, you know, trying to get myself, you know, back in the game. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways you can chase the game. The worst way to chase the game is to not discipline the game early 
with the whistle and and now you're trying to get everybody to understand what is and isn't a foul and nobody can nobody can figure it out because you didn't do a good job in the first six minutes what's the hardest part of the nba game to ref which plays are the most difficult for you uh you know for me uh you know out of bounds and goaltending happens so quick um you know those are plays that can really surprise you post play used to to be more difficult when we had big centers like Shaquille and Yao Ming in the game with the game opening up and with all the stretch fours and the five shooting threes, um, you don't have the kind of post play you used to have um, back in the nineties when I first came in in the early two thousands. Um, so now it's those speed plays, you know, the, the plays where it's like, was that going down? You know, who's, Oh my God, whose foot did that hit off of you know, last after it hit six feet um, on the way out of bounds. Um, so those, those plays that happen, you know, like, with yeah, the speed of light um those are for me those are the toughest i don't know if it's because i'm getting older or, or just they're that that difficult i think it's a big thing is that the game's faster and the players are more athletic and you don't you just have a lot of play above the rim so it's it's happens so quickly so and that's really why we have replayed in the last two minutes for goaltending because those plays are so difficult how does it no oh, i gotta scratch that <laughs> bring it back hey i'm a ref scott I'm just the rest. Episode number 49 of the Crown Refs Podcast is brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. If you're looking for that clean, professional look on the court, there's only one way to do it. Log on to neattucks.com and order yours today. Neat Tucks and Crown Refs, serving the game. When I watch you work, it's easy to recognize the certain command that you have for the game. But another thing that stands out is your patience. What advice could you give to an official that's looking to improve on a patient whistle? Well, um, well, the biggest thing, uh, that was a big thing. Um, at the first camp I ever went to, the cheap three-point play was like the, the mantra of that camp. And um, basically, the, the challenge was to never even have a, a three-point play, which became almost, a, you know, we took the needle way too far where, you know, guys were getting fouled and the ball would go in and we go, oh, well, that's not a foul because it went in. And um, that's, that's, that's not the case. So you have to really calibrate your whistle, what, what is a good and one and what isn't. But um, having a patient whistle is start, develop, and finish. So when I'm in lead, I'm refereeing with my weight on my back foot. Um, and it helps me slow my whistle down. It gives me that weight shift moment where I just go, oh, oh no, that's not a foul. And it saves me a lot of times from having a whistle I don't like. So it really helps me slow down. Um, when I'm in the trail, I do the other the opposite. I referee on my front foot and I move towards plays. and I walk plays to the rim um, to try and, you know, speed my whistle up because from the trail, the plays can pass you by if you're not doing that. And so I always want to stay engaged on my front foot when I'm in the trail. And then slot, I have kind of more of a balanced batting stance, you know, where you're just kind of, you know, you're kind of even because you're kind of in the middle of things. But, um, you know, when it comes down to there's a, a bunch of things that really never changed in the NBA or in my career since they've started. Um, and or it's not a bunch. Of things. There's only two things. And that is rebounding and plays the basket. And so um, those are real basketball plays. Those are plays where you can say, you know, that's marginal. That had no effect. That's a good basket. They got the rebound. We're going the other way. You know, as long as it's not rough play, those are that's where you show the feel for the game. There's been so many changes in guidelines and post play and guidelines and hands and guidelines and perimeter play. Those plays are automatic fouls or they're not automatic fouls, but plays of the basket rebounding 
are plays where you can wait and wait and wait and come back and make your decision after everything's happened. So the biggest thing is for me when I'm in, in lead um, is to keep the air down by keeping my weight back. Danny Crawford always talked about keep the air in your belly. Um, I get what he's saying, and uh, I try and do that. And I understand what he means as the air creeps up, like when you get that play in front of the basket where it's, you know, dunk attempt block shot, put back block shot, put back block shot. And, you know, you get that total chaos in front of the rim and just, you know, staying patient and just patient and patient. Um, that, that's really important. You can't let that air come up. And all of a sudden you have a whistle on the third block that was the, the best block of the three because there's been so much action at the rim. Well, again, there's also uh, red flags, you know, where um, <clears throat> a lot of times on offensive uh, rebounds from the trail, especially, I always step towards the rim because for the lead, there's that you're trying to slow down. And when you have that, um, that offensive rebound put back, a lot of times the reason they got an offensive rebound is because the defender's slow or late. And so he's not only slow and late, he's low and late. So his arm is going to, or his hand's going to be below the ball and he comes up short on the ball and contacts the wrist or the forearm on the putback and happens so quick that sometimes it, you know, it can, it can deceive the lead or it can get by the lead. So the trail has to be refereeing high and if they engage their front foot, they can get it. But the lead also has to have an awareness that that happens a lot where you're, you have put back, put back, put, Oh, and then he gets hit because he's low and slow. So, um, you know, the lead needs to put on, you know, stand on his back foot, but he has to also be willing to open up the window of opportunity and, call a play late, uh, not so late. Um, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say there's been times where um, I thought, wow, that was a foul. And then I checked this, you know, I read the ball, the ball came off and I looked, yeah, that was a foul. And sometimes you, you do that too, too late. It doesn't look, it doesn't look right. And uh, I know it's something we've improved on since I've gotten the NBA. We're better at not doing that as often now. We're calling plays a little quicker but it's still not a bad practice to wait until the very last moment. So you don't, so you eliminate those, those bad whistles. I know you've talked about um, having some great mentors and being in the right place at the right time and seizing your opportunity. What do you think are the three or four core strengths that have helped you get to this point? Um, the biggest thing for me was um, trying I compete against myself. That's for sure. I'm an overcompetitive person to a fault. And uh, I would say that's also one of my biggest weaknesses. Um, but um, having a consistency in a lot of things I do um, to build good habits is important. Um, and then prep preparation for every game, whether it be October 9th or June 9th, um, you have to prepare for every game as if it's the most. And I know it's very cliche and, you know, people are like, you know, does he really do that? Uh, Joe Crawford, Ed Rush, they put – they imparted that on me at an early age, um, that uh, especially in the NBA, but even before then with Al Batista, you know, going through your your pregame checklist, your personal pregame checklist, your videos, you know, turning on the mechanism and you know, reading some casebook plays and just really being ready for when the ball goes up every single night is the most important thing. You can't start a game and wait to miss your first play and then go, oh, I guess I'll start refereeing right now. That's the biggest thing. Duke Callahan used to always smack me on my my uh, leg when we'd have games together and he'd go, come on, buddy, right out of the gate. And actually he'd say, come on, pal, right out of the gate. And then he goes, let's not miss one and then start refereeing. He'd say it every night. And so that was his way of turning his mechanism on. Um, you know, I go through a pregame ritual every single night, you know, at, 
at uh, 1048 and 548 and 348 and you know, all these jump, different numbers that prepare me. And if I don't see the clocks during pregame hitting those numbers, I know I'm not focused and there's a, it's, it, I know I need to get locked in before it hits zeros and the, they play the national anthem and it's time to go. And, um, you know, just having all those habits that turn your brain on you know, so you're ready to go right when it's happening. That's the biggest thing. So consistency in your preparation and, uh, and also consistency in the way you behave. Um, the one thing I can say is for 26 years in the NBA, I haven't changed <laughs> um, who I am. And uh, that, you know, again, I said, like I said, things have changed. We used to be uh, told to run the game and now we're told to be approachable and to run the game, of course. But, um, but, you know, there is some adapting um, that I've had to do over the last 26 years and Joe Crawford did for 39 years. And if you're going to be around that long, you got to adapt. So consistency, preparation and, and adapting to um, your environment um, consistently you know, all, all the time. That, those are the biggest things. Awesome stuff. So with such a rigorous NBA schedule, how do you find a work-life balance? Uh, well, I mean, well, during the season, basically we're working, um, you know, I've been married for 24 years and she married into the, you know, the NBA referee life. So she gets it. My kids get it. Um, me being away hurts me more than it hurts them to be honest with you, I think. And, um, you know, um, during the basketball season, it's <clears throat> for me. It's my job. It's not. It's not my avocation. It's what I do for a living. So everyone around our house gets it. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're watching games here twenty four seven, and you know we find time for you know family and that sort of thing. But then the balance comes during the summer. That as soon as that season's over, that season is over, and I get a, I get away from it. And um, you know we live at the beach and we play golf and pickleball and cards and bike ball and. We just, you know, we just hang as a family at the beach all summer long. So that's the that's the great thing about having your summers off is get reconnecting with the family um, for those three months, basically. Scott, you've been in the NBA for 25 years now and have accomplished a whole lot. At this point in your career, what are your goals? Uh, you know, I, you know, somebody asked me that uh, at the end of the last season because. Um, uh, if the, guard, the game had gone to game seven, I would have uh, worked that game as a crew chief. And um, it was, uh, that would have been one more thing I could you know, kind of notch off the list of things I haven't, I've done in the NBA. So I've worked two NBA game sevens and <clears throat> an all-star game that had the most fans to ever watch a game uh, at, at Texas stadium. So that was cool. Um, been to a bunch of countries to referee. So all those are cool things. Um but uh, I think from this point on, you know, I guess my goals are to mentor people like Ashley Morgleish and, and Natalie Sago and, and all our young referees and all the new ones that come in. And then, uh, you know, continue to be um, at, as keep my game as high as I can keep it. Um, I do kind of want to be uh, in Game of Zones as an evil character because um, that would be cool. But, you know. I'm, I don't know if they'll write me in there. Plus, they'll make me like a blind sorcerer, so that's no good. But, uh, yeah, so that's it. But but basically, I mean, obviously, I'm on the back end of my career. Um, I want to make sure I leave uh, when I'm supposed to leave. But while I'm, while I'm uh, you know, here right now, I think mentoring the, the re younger referees and being a leader and a role model and all those things um, are, are kind of my goals as we go along. And, uh, you know, just uh, trying to keep my game as high as you can because um, – 
you know, there comes a time in every referee's career where you kind of go, am I, am I as good as I once was, you know, am I, am I good enough to be here still? Or am I, you know, kind of getting by because I've been here for so long. And, um, you know, I'm just definitely going to, you know, you got to work a little harder physically and mentally and, and prepare even more as you get older. So, um, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of my goal is to, to, you know, stay as high, close to the top as I possibly can while I'm also mentoring and kind of winding things down. Great goals. <laughs> you wear, uh, I see you wear number 48, correct? Yep. Damn, this is the Crown Rest Podcast number 49. It just missed you by one. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it is what it is. I mean, 49, maybe that's just the next step in my life. So we're almost there. Scott, would you agree that we as officials are constantly looking to improve our communication with coaches and players? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, something I think every referee is always trying to figure out is how do I deal with coaches? How do I deal with players? It helps the game go smoother when, you know, basically the players play and the coaches coach and we referee and at the end of the day, the best team wins. So, uh, you know, um, the, I, you know, I got to give coaches uh, some credit because um, they are trying to get better. They, they know that um, that uh, the referees are doing their best and and we're starting to come together you know, at the NBA level where we have summits and we talk about um, things that that can help our communication. Uh, the players aren't a part of that, but we've also reached out to the players now, and now we've started that that uh, process with them. And interestingly enough, the ones who have have uh, like come to those meetings and been a part of that, I find that they have massive improvement in the way they come and deal with us uh, on the court. And and uh, and when I talk to players about you know uh, the way I'm talking to them, or if I apologize for maybe something that I've done, you know, out of emotion or something like that. Um, they're, they're, they, they understand that it's a competitive environment and, and, um, and that sometimes, you know, things can get said or, or be taken out of context. So at the end of the day, we're just trying to get along and, you know, just do the best job we can as far as getting plays right. That's good that the players are taking some steps to improve, you know, their ways to communicate with the officials. I think it would only help their game. I think it would only help their team. My next question for you is how do you respond when a lot of these star players, constantly complain and demand immediate explanations and basically come at the officials with such negative energy throughout the game? Uh, well, the biggest thing I try and do is stay, stay rule-based uh, and stay calm and, and, um, and basically just kind of keep my, my, um, my explanations to a, one sentence or less. And I find when I get into a diatribe or long thrown out explanation about why or, you know, why a call is made or not made, um, it, it gives them even more, I guess, ammunition to come back at me with why it was wrong or, you know, or why they felt like um, I wasn't being fair. And um, so really, it's, for me, it's about keeping it short and concise. And I think sometimes when you're trying to be short and concise and move on, it can it can, you know, not always go great. But uh, but that's really my main goal is to 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 move along to the next the next thing.
Production.